Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast, episode 17. Our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. Today, I sat down with Ben Court from Court Consulting. Ben was a fantastic interview. He has been part of the recovery movement in almost every way imaginable, from a recipient of services to a spokesperson to respected professional inside treatment industry. He's been sober since 1996. And he's seen the devastation that substance use disorder can bring firsthand, as well as the joy that is recovery. So Ben began his career inside human resources and was a director at an S&P 500 firm by age 27. He left that position to help start the Colorado-based nonprofit Phoenix Multisport, an organization that provides pro-social activities that are primarily athletic in nature to those living sober lives. As an original board member and the first full-time employee, Ben was instrumental in building an organization that still receives frequent national attention for its innovative approach to fighting addiction through sport and the community that surrounds sport. In May of 2012, he left Phoenix Multisport to join the opposition campaign for Amendment 64, the constitutional amendment that would ultimately allow for the commercialization of marijuana in Colorado. Following that campaign, Court joined the University of Colorado Hospital, where he ran marketing, business development, and admissions for their substance use treatment service line known as CEDAR. He left that role in January of 2017. Throughout his time with UCH, Ben remained active in the discussion around marijuana, assisting several states in their efforts to hold back big marijuana and always advocating for recovery. These efforts kept him close to the national discussion and made him a frequent guest in the media. Ben has earned a reputation as being pro-logic and recovery rather than anti-anything. His direct and honest approach has made him a sought-after speaker and respected voice in this national conversation. And now, welcome to episode 17. Welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. Today I'm very excited to have Ben Court on, and he's just going to tell us about who he is and how he is creating change and the issues that he's passionate about. So Ben, tell us a little bit about where you're from and your story and how and why you got involved uh, in creating the change that you've uh, been working so passionately on. Oh, for sure. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Amanda. This is fun. I, um, I, I like it when we get to talk about the why instead of just the what because the the what of my issue seems to kind of dominate most of the the subject with it so i live in uh just north of boulder colorado and have been here for for quite some time i actually grew up in colorado and then ended up out east and um it was out east that i um developed a, a an addiction to substances and to alcohol and then ended up getting sober um believe it it seems like forever ago now uh june 15th of 1996 so i'm coming up on an anniversary if everything keeps going well wow. and, congratulations oh thanks so much it's um 
is harder earned some days than others, but today it just feels feels like the thing to do. Um, and I got involved in uh, helping other people who were suffering from addiction or substance use disorder, which is what we really should be calling it, back in 2007 when uh, my climbing partner and I uh, got a little nonprofit going here in Boulder that became a kind of big nonprofit that helped folks to find um, alternatives to, to getting high through sport and then entered into, I guess, a larger conversation about the role that substances play in our society and kind of maybe asking ourselves some of those hard questions like, um, like why do we get as high and drunk as we do? And one thing sort of led to another. And uh, while I was with the University of Colorado Hospital inside of their inpatient drug and alcohol treatment program, I started to pay real close attention to and, and get pretty concerned um, with the issues surrounding commercialized marijuana here in Colorado. Um, so I ultimately ended up writing a book about it and getting kind of vocal about some of the issues I saw and um, got invited to do a TED Talk, which was crazy. But so I, I spend a lot of my time um, talking to people uh, about some of the drawbacks associated with a uh, commercial market for, for cannabis. Wow. So tell us uh, a little bit about your book and just some of the things, um, you know, that you've helped to change and some of the issues that you're passionate around the whole, um, you know, being concerned about legalized cannabis. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, I'll, I'll start with the book. I don't think it's a particularly good book, um, but I think it's an important, <laughs> I, I think it's an important book. Um, you're, you're talking to a, um, a lover of fine literature, and I don't think that I wrote anything fine, but I think that it's it's important because there's so many misperceptions and misunderstandings about this particular subject. And again, we can talk about some of those if you're interested, but the the where the real passion comes from, and this can get really easily misunderstood inside of this world, as I'm sure many of your listeners who have paid attention to the weed debate know, um, it can get boiled down and in, in the in, into way overly simplified arguments, and the politics of it can get insane. Um, when it comes down to it, my my real passion is just helping people like me who have substance use disorder issues and who need help and who are looking for another way to live their life. Um, this whole weed thing has ended up being kind of a, a, a secondary to it. And the reason why I guess I'm, I'm so interested in it and so concerned about it is I see the effect that it's having on on that thing that I really do love so much and care so deeply about, which is helping people um, with addictive issues as well as mental health disorders to, to find the help that they need. And um, sure. I, I guess that's the thing that I really care about. Weed has just been sort of one of the, um, it, it's the topic of conversation on everybody's lips today. So it's a little bit easier to talk about those things I so much care about um, through the um, screen, if you will, of what's going on with, with weed in this country. Sure. So tell me about when did you have that kind of aha moment where you just realized, wow, this might be a bigger issue than than I thought and kind of what was that moment where you said I I think I need to get more involved and and do more than I've been doing um 
it, it was that I actually like, I should probably figure out the, the date, but it, it like has a date. <laughs> um, I was encouraged to consider um, getting involved in the politics of it at the beginning by a dear friend of mine who was very politically active. Um, she's since passed away and she's such a beautiful woman that I, I always listened to her ideas um, because I so respected her. But I thought the idea of me getting involved in politics was just absolutely ridiculous because um, I think it's usually the problem more than it is the solution. And she actually encouraged me to, to read the bill and then to consider it that way. So one day um, in 2012, I actually like sat down and I went through the proposed legislation in Colorado, that, which I now know kind of all the stats on. It was, it's a big one. It was uh, 3,666 words. And it, it wasn't just it wasn't simple legislation. It actually in Colorado was a constitutional amendment. So we added those 3,666 words to the Colorado state constitution. And it was by reading that and then really trying to consider um, some of the language that I was seeing and where, how it would play out in a, a practical uh, real world situation. I got, like really concerned and I said okay hang on this isn't about like freedom and libertarian ideals of keeping the government out of our business this is about big business and um it actually freaked me out enough that I uh left that nonprofit that I loved more than anything in the world and and started to get involved uh, pretty active politically you say that it was involved, um, there was more about big business. Tell me what you mean by it was about big business. So we've got this idea, and, and I, I think a lot of your listeners, this might resonate with them, that we've got this idea about what legalization is. And I think when we think about it, what we hear are the, the arguments that are opposed to the current system, which clearly there's lots of issues in the current system that needs to be addressed and fixed. But this idea that we have is that we're just no longer going to prosecute um, people who are, are low-level users. And in reality, when you look at the legislation, so to me, that idea is decriminalization. And decriminalization is actually always something that, um, and, and I piss off a lot of my ultra-conservative friends with this, but that I've always been just fine with. Um, that's the perspective of a recovering drug addict. Um, but this is the commercialization of another vice substance. So when you start to look at the language, it had way less to do with what like law enforcement couldn't do anymore and way more to do with what the commercial industry was uh, allowed to, to do and how they were allowed to operate, um, you know, limiting fines that they could ever be exposed to and creating um, mandates that were on really accelerated timetables to get all the legislation and the, the, the uh, rules governing it in place. And then also just setting up um, protections for that industry. And so the concern that I have with that, and the one that struck me when I first read through it and has just continued to be, reinforced again and again um, in the six years since has been that, that this country really, really sucks at regulating vice substances. Um, we have not done a good job with tobacco. We've not done a good job with alcohol. You know, as the 
mood altering substance that is is legal in booze it's by far and away the most harmful that there is inside of the country despite our best efforts to regulate we have seen that despite our best efforts to regulate um the pharmaceutical industry and the way that they have I, I would say not push but like perpetrated the opiate epidemic on so much of america um when it comes to capitalism and vice substances uh, America's got a pretty poor track record, and there was absolutely nothing inside of this to make me think we would do this one better. Wow. So when you talk about some of the misperceptions that people do have, uh, obviously the first one being talking about um, kind of whether we should lock people up or not, but just what are some of the other misperceptions and just things that you've discovered or found out that you know, maybe appear one way or we hear them talked about one way, but you've kind of discovered there's more to it than that. I, I think we should take the, the biggest example, the easiest one, hopefully for people to get their brains around. Well, heck, maybe it's some, in some ways the hardest form because it cha directly challenges a construct that many people hold in their brains is, is what marijuana is. And so you, you say that, and I think um, the vast majority of your listeners are they're going to say, well, I know what, what weed is. I, I was around in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, and I, I went to college, and I've been to concerts before. Um, and we, we've all seen some of the great movies. <laughs> we've, um, so we have this idea of what weed is as kind of this plant that grows naturally, this thing that's got, um, um, you know, 200 different uh, components inside of it before you light it on fire and 500 and so after you light it on fire and a, a kind of cool and kind of complex organic um, thing. And in reality, what weed is, and this is very, very important, I mean, I hope everybody listens to it. What weed is, is what the law defines it as. And in Colorado, what we defined it as, and I think here's about an exact quote from it, it's every salt, derivative, extract of, and concentrate uh, that can be made from the cannabis plant. So what we ended up with was moving away from the, the weed that I was used to in the 90s, and I think a lot of people messed with that had a THC component, that of course being the, the only part of the plant that gets you high, having a THC component that was like single digits. I mean, it, it, it's fiercest stuff back then. You're looking at a five or 6% to a plant that actually can have uh, THC levels uh, up to 40%. But then the real issue is in the concentrates, the solvents, the, the hash, um, the, these things that can be up, up to 99% pure THC. So we actually sell more of those in Colorado than we do the plants. So these are highly manufactured. Uh, these aren't things that are grown in the dirt by um, hippies who love the plant. These are things that are manufactured in the lab by people with PhDs. And, and the reason why we have made the weed so much stronger, it's not even weed, the reason why we have packaged THC in all these different ways from the edibles to the concentrates is, is because the stronger they can make this stuff, the more likely they are of developing really, really good customers and a really good customer in a, for a mood altering substance, whether that's pharmaceuticals or alcohol or marijuana is the person who I care the most deeply about in this world because the best customers for them 
are the hardest and the saddest cases for me. Wow. I know a lot of times I hear just in our community, um, I just hear a lot of people say, well, you know, go after alcohol, go after the pharmaceutical industry. Weeds never killed anybody. No one dies from marijuana. Uh, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Can you just talk a little bit or do you have any input about around that? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me let me first correct the misperception that people have about weed not killing people. Um, I actually wrote a chapter in the book about this, and um, no one has ever overdosed from marijuana. But it's not entirely accurate. There's a few cases in the literature, but they're like super one-off crazy things. Um, so, so no one's ever overdosed from it. And I like to challenge that by reminding people that nobody has ever overdosed from tobacco either. Yet plenty of people have, have died as a result of their use. So in Colorado, the, probably the easiest thing to look to is the, um, the traffic fatalities where the vehicle was operated by somebody who was intoxicated on marijuana, and then we blame the marijuana for that um, accident. So those are really simple fatalities to stack up. There also is uh, marijuana-induced psychosis, which leads people to do pretty nutty things, which, again, like 15 years ago, it was a very rare diagnosis to see on the charts, and it was something that just didn't happen a whole lot. But because of the changing chemistry of all things weed, the, these crazy high potencies are resulting in people having psychotic episodes that, that absolutely lead to them both hurting and killing themselves and hurting and killing others. So first off, let me kind of dispel that idea that weeds never killed anybody. That's a, that's a dumb thing to say. Um, and, and I think it, it uh, makes a bit of a mockery of a lot of the pain that I know people are going through who have lost loved ones to it. Um, so it, it, as far as the rest of your question goes with how this is so often compared to these other substances, which are so terrible and, and wreck our society. Okay. N not terrible substances, but terrible in the way that they play out in, inside of our society. The, the thing that the most devastating substances in our country have in common is that they are legal. It's not that one is a depressant and another is a neuroinhibitor and another is a psychedelic. And the, it, it is that they are legal and thereby part of a commercialized market. And when you look at the simple incentives of a commercialized market, the manufacturer, the distributor is directly incented to have as much of their product consumed as they can. Um, alcohol is not a, a worse substance than a lot of the illegal ones out there, but by the numbers, it is far more devastating to this country than any, opiates included, um, because it's so much more readily available and because so many more people use it. So to me, the, the problem is, as soon as we allow corporate interests and um, people with a, a significant financial stake to be the ones making the decisions of, about these substances that can be addictive and can be harmful, um, we have given away the farm to people who don't know how to take care of it. Sure. I know people will tell me, though, that right now, you know, when you're talking about the people that are using um, illegal drugs or using marijuana, 
like they're obtaining those drugs from dangerous people like drug dealers but if we did legalize it we'd at least be making it safer for people making sure they knew what they were getting and making sure that they weren't getting it from the local drug dealer um what are your thoughts around that well, I think there's a real valid point in it. Um, I think, and, and I don't want to be pure Debbie Downer, so let me kind of give you the upside to a scenario like that I would see first. Um, if if you could do that, if you could actually have a true regulatory infrastructure that made sure that the black market was getting shut down, our, our black market is um, just thriving under commercialization here in Colorado. It's a big issue. Um, and it's, and we, I don't think we have time to get into all of the whys on that, but it basically comes down to um, the ability to grow in plain sight as well as the desire that people have to pay for an untaxed product versus a taxed. Um, so if you could do that, and if, if we actually knew what people were getting, and if we regulated it, like in the same way that we do alcohol, like we've got limits on how much, um, uh, on how potent different alcohol products could be. If we could do something like that, if we could limit advertising, um, I think we would be in a pretty good place. Unfortunately, um, I don't believe that that can be done on a state by state level because um, the incentives are all wrong. You know, somebody can go to Colorado, pick up as much of anything that they want, and then take that thing to Wyoming or take it to New Mexico or to Texas really easily from here. And so for it to be happening on this kind of piecemeal state by state, there are really direct incentives involved to. Um, increase the black market. So it, it could be done, but it would take a hell of a lot more thought than we have been willing to put into it so far. Um, you also would need a national regulatory agency like the, the ATF. We would need to make it the ATF and M because states aren't used to regulating things like this completely on their own. They're used to a lot of help from the feds with it. Um, the other thing, and, and I do get asked this pretty frequently, is would you prefer to have it back in the hands of a drug dealer? And, you know, the reality here, and I don't want to be um, trite with this because I've, I've come out of this world and I still work with a lot of folks who are in this world, is I actually like I, I would um, because I've never met a drug dealer who has happy hour specials or who is... Um, buying billboards to sell their products or using cartoon characters as a way of getting people interested. And these are all things that I see very regularly by the marijuana industry here in Colorado. Wow. What are some of the other things maybe um, that people are seeing in Colorado um, that maybe other communities haven't thought about? So when you go and you talk to people, just things that surprise people about what's happening there. Um, so I think everybody, there's this idea that we know what we're doing from a driving under the influence of marijuana standpoint. Um, th this is actually a, a really great um, issue, a, a significant issue that we kind of need to solve. And I speak in depth um, about this in my book. We, we do not have good science and good capabilities to actually test whether or not somebody is impaired on THC other than what's called um, a, a DRE. So DRE is a member of law enforcement who's a drug recognition expert. So they would actually like come out to the scene and put you through a series of tests. 
And it costs a whole lot more money to get a specifically trained law enforcement officer on site than it does to have somebody, um, you know, blow into a breathalyzer. So I would encourage folks, without getting too much into the science, to, to look at some of the work of uh, Marilyn Hustis that, that she's done on a national and international level about the extreme complexities of determining whether or not somebody is too impaired to drive on, on weed versus alcohol. You know, with booze, we've got 0.08 that everybody has agreed that's just it, but that's, that's blood. Um, with alcohol, what we use is a five nanograms per milliliter benchmark. Um, that is that the science behind that is nascent at best. It, it's not good science. What it is is a number that people have basically decided on. And there can be people with considerably higher rates than that who are, um, fully conscious and capable of operating a motor, motor vehicle. And there are people with um, significantly lower rates than that who are causing fatalities in Colorado every week. So they got to pay really close attention to the driving thing because we haven't figured the science out behind that. And it's a really tough one for law enforcement. Sure. And we can put those links in the show notes for people who want to read a little bit more. And we can also put uh, links to your book in the show notes in case people want to dive more into the issue. Um, do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with our listeners around this issue or just, um, you know, some of the hope that you see from what's happening? Because, I mean, it does sound so discouraging, but have you seen any um, things where you just say, wow, like there is some hope in this issue or? So, the hope piece is that we are having more conversations about both the, the ways that we've interacted with illegal substances in the past and some of the some of the awful things that we have done. The disproportionate arrest rates of minorities, the um, the the role that government's inability to flex has played in um, a lot of these problems being made worse and worse. And, you know, weed is definitely one of those. This is something that was, um, you can absolutely trace the origins of the laws to it back to an exceptionally racist time inside of our country's history where we thought this would help us solve kind of the, the black and Latino problem. Um, and so we've got some, we got some big things we need to wrestle with in this country about how um, drugs affect uh, different populations, particularly minority populations, LGBTQ community populations, and and how law enforcement around those affects it. And so I'm happy that that conversation is coming more to light. Um, my my, I guess the thought that I would leave everybody with would be um, to to just implore people as emphatically as I can to apply critical thinking to this. It seems like this subject is one that we are willing to make up our mind on and then radically shift laws inside of this country based on an op-ed that we read sometime by somebody who's got very clear ties to an industry. Like if alcohol or tobacco or pharma we're running hearts and minds campaigns like this, trying to sway public opinion, we would all be super skeptical. But for some reason, um, I see people sort of accepting whatever's handed to them about the good of weed and rejecting anything that could be associated with the harms. And 
unfortunately, Amanda, and I wish it wasn't this way, unfortunately, the world's just not that simple. And there's nothing that's going to fix everything. So sure. apply your critical thinking to this and, and really try to, to reason out how it's going to play out rather than just take the words of the people who are looking to cash in on it. Sure. And I think that's just good advice uh, with everything we hope to see change, you know, just really taking a good look at it. And so many of the great things that have been done in our country around reducing substance use issues have been because people have just said, hmm, I wonder if there's more to the story and dug a little deeper. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you so much for your time, Ben. I hope that uh, we get to have you on again in the future and just continue to hear about your work and what you're doing. And um, we really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and hear about the change that you're creating in your world. Well, thanks so much. This is my pleasure. Hope you have a great day. You too, Ben. Bye. For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.